So, continuing where we left off. So this book is called Being Dharma, uh, Paul Brighter's translation of a number of Lumpur Chah's Dhamma talks. And we are in the section called Practicing Dharma, Chapter 3. And this is a talk that's uh, been given the title The Path to Peace, which is a very long talk. We got part of the way into it in the previous readings, and so this is continuing uh, uh, along with it. The Brahma Viharas, or divine abidings, of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, should be the foundation of our awareness. We should have love and compassion equally toward all people that we meet. We can't just think, this one is not a friend or a relative, so therefore, we don't need to have any concern for her. Actually, we, all fr we are all friends and relatives in birth. There are no other people. Even though we are from different townships or provinces, we're like grains of rice. They grow from one plant or in one field, and as they grow and increase, they're spread around and planted in other places. One grain makes a plant, one plant makes many grains that seed new plants. But it's still rice from the same plant, spreading the species far and wide. We people are the same. From a common ancestry, we end up following our predilections and spreading out in the four directions. When we've scattered far enough, we start to forget ourselves. So we encounter different people and think, eh, this is no relation of mine. When we travel to another village, we think, this is not my home village. The truth is that we are relatives in birth, aging, illness and death. So our Supreme Teacher instructed us to turn our minds to Dharma and to establish Dharma as the foundation of our lives. This means helping each other, without exception. Whoever is suffering, whoever is in difficulty, we should try to help as well as we can. Please think about this and try to have this attitude. Living in this world together, we should think of each other as parents, relatives and children. But it's as if we've been separated for many years, so we forget who we are. And we begin to fight and cause all sorts of strife with each other, becoming like animals, just because of this forgetfulness. Forgetting becomes the cause of fighting, struggling and even killing each other. Yet, we really are one people. We're all relatives, brothers and sisters. So this is a very central principle that we have in, in Buddha Dhamma, uh, that um, we come from different sort of biological families and different parts of the planet. But um, uh, what we have in common is that we were all born, we're all continually aging, and these lives will come to an end. And so um, one of the ways, uh, and I think I've mentioned this before in previous readings, that uh, oftentimes they, uh, someone beginning a Dhamma talk will begin by saying, you know, addressing the, the group by saying, um, sisters and brothers in uh, birth, aging, sickness, and death, you know, establishing that sense of we are we're of a single family, we're of a single sort of gotra, a single kind of clan, it, uh, and recognizing that quality uh, of unity and connection, relatedness uh, between us, and to overlook those senses, uh, the, the kind of senses of, of difference that we have in terms of age or gender or nationality or skin color or language and so on and so forth. It's uh, Our conditioning is very strong, that we are, are very 
say, uh, uh, affected by those particular um, worldly or biological aspects, but the, the daily reflections and this kind of teaching is giving a different perspective on that, saying, yes, there are these differences, but <laughs> there's this fundamental relatedness, and so rather than focusing on, on the differences and, and inflating those um, beyond what is valuable or uh, uh, necessary or, or uh, useful, then to uh, focus on the sense of what unifies us, what we share in common, and then being guided, uh, being guided by that. One of the um, uh, the expressions they use in the Tibetan tradition, at least translated into English, uh, as a, a way of talking about all beings, they use the phrase "all mother sentient beings," which is based on the principle, that, and, and you find it in the teachings in the Pali as well as as in the Tibetan scriptures that. Uh, uh, if you if you look uh, at other living beings, or every living being that you meet has been your mother in a previous lifetime, so they use that as a sort of automatic expression. All mother sentient beings. So when uh, uh, when you're getting upset with somebody on the road or in the kitchen or in the vihara, and <laughs> then it's like, well, this person's been my mother in a previous lifetime, and so it sort of rejigs the perception. Of course, if you had a difficult relationship with your mother, or you still have a difficult relationship with your mother, it's like, no. <laughs> Got to tweak accordingly. Uh, it's based on, that kind of expression is based on the fact, well, of course, you, you love and adore your mother and respect her absolutely as this incarnation of goodness in the universe. So it's a, it's a, a skillful means to, to rejig the, the perceptions. But... Um, and there are numerous teachings uh, like that where the Buddha is like, trying to get the mind around the vast number of lives that we've all had. You know, saying like, if you uh, if you just uh, if you measured the amount of blood that you've shed by having your head cut off for being uh, say uh, arrested and punished for being a, a bandit or a murderer, you know, the blood that you've shed from all your different lifetimes would, would fill the seven oceans of the of the world. Or, or if you piled up all the bones that uh, have made up your bodies in previous lifetimes and it would be higher than the Vipula mountain range and, and so on and so forth. There's many, many teachings like that saying, get your mind around it. This is, <laughs> this is one in a long, 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 long series. And also how we can be so identified with our particular role, our particular our nationality, our, our personal history in this lifetime and broadening the picture to consider that, um, that uh, you know, that... Uh, we have lived many, many lifetimes and functioned in many, many different roles and, and different, uh, say, modes uh, over 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 time. And um, and then the last little passage here, he says, um, uh, but it, it's as if we've become separated for many years, so we forget who we are, and we begin to fight and cause all sorts of strife with each other, becoming like animals just because of this forgetfulness. Forgetting becomes the cause of fighting, struggling, and even killing each other. Yet we are really one people. We are all relatives, brothers and sisters. So again, often um, the Western perception of animals, we tend to, to glorify or even deify animals and think, well, I quite like to be born as animals. Animals are pure. Animals are innocent. Animals are, are uh, not like us, kind of horrible, corrupt human beings. So we do in the West tend to have a, a somewhat... Uh, not everybody, but quite often a sense of glorification or, or looking upon the animal realm as quite sort of pure or sanctified or or, or innocent. 
Um, but the in the Buddhist perspective, and if you look at uh, if any sort of biologists or zoologists amongst us, <laughs> well, no, if you look at the animal world and see how it functions, um, just watching the uh, uh, the 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 blue tits and the the robins and the great tits competing for the the grain and the the peanuts hanging from the bird feeders outside my cootie, they're not saying, "Oh, please, after you." <laughs> No, 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 after you, please, no. There's only a little bit left. You have it, you have it. it uh-uh. yeah. There's a lot of yeah, looking around. They're, they're kind of, I know birds are like small dinosaurs. I mean, they are, they are that's their ancestry. And that, um, it's, uh, as they say, it's not, uh, nasty, brutish, and short is the average life in the, in the, uh, in the biological world, the, the, the animal world. And um, and so we do have a great advantage in the human realm that the Brahma Viharas are accessible to us, and and I know having spoken about this uh, in a number of situations, people say, Ajahn, you have not met my cat. My cat is the most spiritual member of the family, and, and meaning it, you know, like, how dare you? So, I, and I'm re- I realize this is being recorded, so appreciate. It. Some people have a very uh, the the animals that they live close to have perhaps got some very wonderful qualities, but within the Buddhist cosmology and the Buddhist sort of uh, appreciation, the Tirachana Loka, the animal realm, is one of instinct and reactivity based on, on food, territory, sex, and, uh, uh, and competition. And so that it's a, 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 a tense and reactive realm in, in general. The... Um, uh, also, the, uh, one of the, uh, the, uh, uh, the points he makes here in that last sentence, forgetting becomes the cause of fighting, struggling, and even killing each other. Though one of the, uh, the teachings that is, phrases things in a similar way is the teaching about conceptual proliferation, the Madhu Pindaka Sutta, where the, the Buddha talks about it being attachment to perceptions that uh, is the cause of picking up weapons, arguing and fighting and competing against each other the mind gets uh, attached to its perceptions and and, uh, and its and its thoughts and giving them extra uh, say strength or, or uh, uh, a, a validity or a power or an importance that they don't uh, genuinely possess you know, inflating our thoughts and perceptions and seeing them as absolutely valid judge, uh, judgments like I'm right you're wrong this is mine you know, back off or I want that you know, and I'm going to take it um, that uh, when there is a perspective on perceptions and, and thoughts and recognizing, oh, this is just liking, this is just fearing, this is just a sense of competition, then uh, the mind doesn't get drawn into uh, and doesn't attach to those those thoughts, and uh, then there its uh, tendency towards conflict gets uh, is abated. But when we believe in our perceptions and the value judgments that the mind makes, this is good, this is bad, this is mine, this is yours. And, and getting lost in the proliferations around those perceptions, then we end up picking up weapons and, and arguing with each other. On the, the, uh, the, the subject of um, we are all each other's parents, relatives and children, I'm not sure if I told the story a, a few weeks ago. I forget what I said to, to who, but um, uh, a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago now, there was a family came to visit uh, Amravati, there was a, a mother and her eight-year-old daughter and the, the mother's parents. And um, the, the mother was um, 
in her uh, early 30s and she said, oh, my parents, uh, they were kicked out of Uganda by uh, Idi Amin and they came to this country and uh, when they came here, they bring me to Amravati as I was a little little girl and I really enjoyed coming here and really appreciated my time and so my daughter's that same kind of age now so I wanted to introduce her to the monastery and and to uh, to bring her here. So we're having a nice little chat like this and it was the mum doing most of the talking and the little girl was, was sitting there in front of her and had a quite a, a sort of serious look on her face and then um, uh, then she said can I ask you a question and I said yes yeah, certainly and she said yeah who was I before I was this person and who was I before that uh, and I said oh uh, um, oh sure. uh, and so I I, um, I said well you know that uh, the Buddha said we have many many lifetimes and that uh, you you know you might have been living in the human world you might be in the animal world you might be in the devil world and and uh, and i and i by quite by chance said you know you, you could have been your own grand you know your own grandfather uh, if you know if your great grandfather passed away you could have been your own great grandfather and i said well why do you ask and she said well i can remember who i was last time but i can't remember uh, before that and then she she turned around she pointed to her grandmother and said i was my granny's mother and i remember that and then she kind of t tapped her mum on the leg and said, so I'm older than you are. <laughs> She's about eight. <laughs> and so she said, but I, I, so I know I was my granny's mother, but, but who was I, uh, how do I find out who I was before that? And she was absolutely serious. She was a very, very um, straightforward uh, and uh, curious about uh, uh, how she could get some proper information about this. <laughs> but she had distinct memories of her grandmother being her daughter. And um, was just uh, so interested on, on what had happened before that. So uh, uh, and they and the other members of the family seemed to be totally cool with that possibility that the mother wasn't upset. They don't, you know, don't be silly, but she just took it as uh, as a matter of course. And their, gr their granny also, like, okay. <laughs> so uh, that uh, even whether we assume those those kind of stories are valid or not. I feel it's, it's helpful to make that kind of exercise because we can get so stuck in our particular roles. Like I'm the parent or I'm the child and this is my parents and seeing yourself fixed in those, those relationships as absolute realities. But if you play with the idea of, oh, I could have been my great-grandmother or great-grandfather or that, uh, <coughs> that uh, why not? And then reshuffling the relationships and seeing it in a, in a bit more of a flexible way can be... Uh, uh, give you a bit of a different perspective on uh, on your life and and what seem to be such so sort of concrete and and um, firmly established roles. So, any questions, thoughts? Silence. Okay, carry on. Let's try to be people with dharma in our hearts, meaning metta or loving kindness. When you meet a female elder, you should have the attitude that this is your mother. When you meet a male elder, you should think, this is my father. If someone is older than you, think of him or her as your older sibling. Like this, everyone is your sibling, your child, your parent. Please make an effort to have this kind of attitude and give equal help to all those in difficulty. Metta is love. There are two types of love. In one, we love selectively, as suits our own purposes. 
The other is all-inclusive love. In the first way, we love ourselves and those close to us. We won't care about anyone outside of our own family. We just won't have any interest. Caring about our own is good, but it's too limited. It's narrow-minded thinking. It is love, also, but it isn't the love of Brahma-vihara. The Buddha wanted us to have measureless, all-inclusive metta. No matter where anyone comes from, we should have the same caring attitude. Whether someone is close to us or distant, we have the same love towards them. In this way, our tranquil mind is said to be all-inclusive, a boundless dharma. This should become our natural habit. Though as we often recite the Metta Sutta, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So it's spelling out the, the kind of aspiration. <laughs> it, uh, certainly it sets the bar quite high in terms of um, uh, caring for other beings. But uh, I, this is a distinction that he makes here that I found very, very helpful because um, the, uh, uh, those two kinds of loving have a, a very, very different dynamic, very different effects. Actually, today, earlier today, there was a, a family came to visit and were talking about exactly this with their relationship between them as parents and their, their grown-up children. So the, the first kind of love, as he says, the, um, uh, the, the selective kind of love, uh, I, I use the, the, the term usually a possessive love, a sense of self and other. I belong to you, you belong to me, I am yours, you are mine. I'm your parent, I'm your child, I'm your student, I'm your teacher, I'm your, uh, your partner, and you are mine, and so on. So that, it's, uh, as Lumpur says, it's, yeah, it's, it's caring about your own family and, and those dear to us is good. But it's also the case the Buddha spelled out in the, the Pia Jataka Sutta, born from those who are dear, that if you have a hundred dear ones, you have a hundred pains. Fifty dear ones, fifty pains. Forty, thirty, twenty, ten. Ten dear ones, ten pains. Five dear ones, five pains. Four, three, two, one. One dear one, one pain. No dear ones, no pains. So when people hear that kind of teaching, they think, oh, that's a bit grim. You know, there's a really a, sort of a sour... Uh, attitude, but uh, he's uh, what he's pointing to is that it's that as long as love is possessive, and there's is it's as a invested with self view and as a concrete sense of self and other, then necessarily that's going to produce dukkha, even if it's well intentioned and even if it's got a lot of generosity and caring coming forth from it, as long as there is that possessiveness and and self view that's influencing it. Intrinsically, the causes for dukkha are being created. So the the challenge then is to uh, to recognize that habit that you know, most of us start out from, and to transform that to what is a, a liberative love, a love that lets go. So the the, the love of of metta and the brahma viharas is is a love that is you know, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. It's a great brightness. It's a great caring quality of the heart. But metta is totally non-possessive. Karuna is also non-possessive. And so that it doesn't intrinsically create the same kind of, of dukkha. And that uh, often it's said that uh, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, the four brahma-viharas, those are the natural emotions of the enlightened mind. So an arahant, in terms of emotion, will relate to other beings with metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, according to 
in different times and places and situations, not uh, just as a natural responsivity of the heart. So, like we in the again in the chanting, we say in you know, the Buddha absolutely pure with ocean-like compassion, and so that there's that profound, immeasurable, ex- abundant, exalted caring. Um, but it's not uh, it's not dependent. It's not possessive. There's no sense of uh, of owning or self and other in a concrete division uh, invested in that. So this is um, uh, it's it, it's difficult to to get a sense for that. And often we we've done a lot of the the peer the kind of uh, p- the possessive love that we have towards our, our our partners, our parents, our children, our, our teachers, our students, and so on. But just to be able to see that natural connection, as long as there is, you, know, you I am yours, you are mine, <laughs> in any way, shape, or form, whatever the, the dynamic of the relationship is, um, then that right there is a cause of dukkha. And that it's not, it's not a kind of sour attitude, it's not a kind of um, a, a nihilism or a negativity, it's just saying, look how nature works. <laughs> this, this is how it operates. And that then... Uh, realizing that the painfulness that comes of that kind of loving then to to transform that so that it's a, a love that is non-possessive uh, the, the kind of caring of metta karuna uh, that is free of self-view free of conceit then um, there's a still this, that same kind of loving maybe even more abundant exalted immeasurable comprehensive than the, the sort of more selective personal possessive loving uh, but there's no dukkha coming from that. So uh, this is a very uh, significant point, I would say. And that, um, yeah, and and certainly it's doable, and it's the standard that the, the the Buddha raises up and encourages us to to embody. It's a you know a point that's frequently misunderstood or not appreciated, since in the Western world, often you know, love is. Uh, in literature, in poetry, in movies, in the art world, the kind of um, these uh, that kind of of um, selective love or personal love or, or possessive love uh, can be you know, very very highly exalted, and the, the sort of the goal of of uh, one's life can be to, to to find you know the perfect one and to to be with them so together forever, but. Um, that and so that there's a strong cultural uh, sort of trope, if you like, as a movement towards finding the perfect one and, and living happily ever after. Um, but I feel it's one of the great gifts that the uh, Buddha Dharma can bring to the Western world and to um, a human society uh, around the planet is saying it's not about not loving or not caring, <laughs> but it's rather than. Um, thinking of of personal love or, or uh, uh, the personal relationships being the the epitome or the the highest goal of human life, rather we can look towards enlightenment itself as the the, the highest goal of human life. And from that that quality of enlightenment, that totally liberated heart, then there is abundant loving that comes from that. But it's not a, a loving that is dependent or limited or or a, or as a um, or personal. So it's a big subject, I realize, but uh, I feel it's Lumpur describes things very, very beautifully here. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections, disagreements? <laughs> Please, yes. Um, basically, in possessive uh, 
uh, we don't really love the person, but we love the pleasant feelings that comes from interaction, from seeing, and so on. So if we wanted to keep for tomorrow, if we want to do something so it lasts, then it becomes possessive love. But it seems to me that um, if you understand these peace relations, you uh, want to take a particular project, they can last for some time, but the, there would be attachment, you would understand that once the project is finished, one is, is basically has the basis. So not the pleasure, but you understand that with this particular person we can make this kind of project or this, this, this one, but not to make it that I want pleasure and I want it tomorrow, I want it to last, and mm. doesn't matter, it doesn't have a basis, only the pleasant feeling that is the basis for keeping, keep, keep it going and wanting it to go on forever without any purpose or basis other than I want my pleasure from this relationship. Right? Yeah, that's, that's very much it. I've often said the house also, when we say, you know, I love that music, or I love that, that kind of food, or I love that, I love that color. Um, and again, this can sound a bit sour or negative or nihilistic. Um, uh, but uh, I've, I've talked about this a few times. It's like, we, we don't love the music. We love the place that the music takes us to. We love what happens in our mind when we hear that. Or we, we love the, the state of mind that arises when we see that or smell that or taste that or, or, or around that person. So we're actually loving our own mind, I would say. And again, people can say, that's really cold. How can you, kind of, it's like a kind of, are you a sociopath? You know. <laughs> but I, I, it's, a, it's I, I feel that just looking at my own mind and how perception works, it's like, it's the, 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 the music or the sound or the flavor or the, the, the company. It's like you love what happens in your mind when there's that contact. You don't love the music. You love the place the music takes you to. And it's also why when people think, oh, I've, I'm repeating that, that beautiful experience. How come I'm not getting it anymore? How come it doesn't have the same effect? Or I'm, I've, that person used to be so inspiring, so delightful, and now eh, it doesn't work anymore because the... It's not the, 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 the person or the, 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 um, the, the, the sound or the taste or the shape or the, the, the flavor. That, uh, it's what it, the effect it has on your mind. That's what, we, that's what we love. And so then we keep trying to get that same feeling to happen over and over again. And, and we'll, we end up ch- so tending to, to chase the same objects or, or uh, having to vary the objects because uh, it's... Uh, it's not recognizing that's what the dynamics. You think the happiness is coming from that that person or that event or that sight or that sound, that smell, that taste, that touch, that that impact. But it's really our, the the effect it has on the mind that we love. Uh, and I appreciate that can come across in a very negative way. <laughs> but I, I do feel it's, it's very very helpful to see that because then you're not continually looking for that happiness or satisfaction or completion to come from the sense object. But you realize it's it's coming from from the mind. That's where that's where that satisfaction comes from. There, there is an interesting uh, speaking of love and loving people in uh, in the, the the Buddhist mythology in stories of um, that you find. It's not actually in the Pali canon, but you find it in the the um, some of the later scriptures. The Divyavadana is the, one of the places where it's found. Um, and it's the story of uh, Ananda meeting uh, a, a young woman 
was from the, the, the one of the lowest castes at the well, that he was traveling through the countryside, and he came to this, this well at the edge of the village, and it was a well that was used by the Chandala, the, the, the kind of um, outcast villages, the, the, the very sort of lowest tier of the, the society. Um, so in the various different stories, some stories the, the young woman is called Pakati, uh, uh, others or, or Prakriti uh, in Sanskrit, or uh, also Matangi. Um, anyway, she uh, she's at the well, and Nanda comes to the to the to the well. She's already drawn up a bucket of water, and he says, um, "And water is one of the things as as, as monks were allowed to ask for." <laughs> so he said, uh, "Can uh, would you give me some of the water that you've?" You pulled from the well, and she says, "Oh, I'm a matanga. I'm 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 uh, uh, I'm low caste. If if you drink this water from my bucket, then it'll pollute you." You know, you. She could see that he was uh, from from just from his his voice, and his his demeanor, his posture. He was from a warrior noble caste, and so you know, you'll be polluted, and I'll be blamed, and uh, I uh, and uh, I, uh, I I can't possibly allow that. And he said, "I didn't ask you for your caste. I asked you for water." And she this blows her mind, and she gives him some water, and he happily drinks it. And he says, and so then she falls madly in love with him, <laughs> and uh, and then uh, f- follows along behind Ananda. He j- joins up with this group of monks walking through the countryside, and follows him all the way back to the Jetavana, to to um, to Savati. And then she uh, goes to the Buddha and says, "Can I serve Ananda? You know, I, you know, I love him, I adore him, I want to be with him always." Uh, can I have permission to, to live here and serve Venerable Ananda? And then the Buddha says to her, uh, uh, very, very sort of gently and, and with, with great kindness, he says, uh, you, you think you love Ananda, but what you love is his kindness. The, you know, the, your mind is interpreting in, I love him, but actually what you love is his kindness. And then she goes, you know, Immediately, that causes this great insight to arise in her, and she stays in the monastery, becomes a nun and an arahant. So, that's uh, Pakati and the well. So that's um, an often retold story. And but I think it, it's also that uh, it's, it's kind of related to what you're saying that uh, that um, the mind has a particularly powerful or positive experience, and you think, oh, it's come from that person. Yeah, but it was coming from someone who, at the very, very bottom of society, you sort of looked down upon and looked upon as, as sort of an outcast or polluted, and someone respecting her and showing kindness. It's like wow! This is like this extraordinarily powerful experience for her. So that that sense of being accepted, being appreciated, you know, seemingly from the story, she hadn't known that, she hadn't experienced that. So that was that sense of being appreciated, being respected, um, being treated as a, as a human being, um, that was kind of extraordinarily so powerful and beautiful. And that was uh, that coming from Ananda's kindness, and it was, you know, that was what had really motivated her. So then the Buddha cared, so didn't say, to, didn't criticize her or blame her, but said, <laughs> you know, look, uh, it's actually kindness is what you're what you're the, the and the effects of that kindness is what is really inspiring and I- illuminating you mm. and basically kind of in some way you can possess you cannot possess other person but you can develop qualities that you like in another person in yourself yes yeah, that, that uh, I mean that's how 
uh, I mean, Lumpur Cha, again, it, he would, when people would be sort of drawing close to him and say, oh, Lumpur, you're so inspiring, you're so helpful, you're so wise, you know, and uh, I, I want to, uh, you know, uh, and if they're kind of expressing how impressed and inspired they are by him, and he would he would tend to say things or, or indicate things like, well, don't don't look at me, look at yourself. <laughs> like, that rather than just praising the qualities that I've got, ask yourself why you haven't why you haven't got those qualities and do what you can to to um, uh, to develop those those same things in yourself. Don't just look at me and praise me for what's here, but take that as a, an example or an encouragement and and develop those same qualities uh, within yourself. And then then that 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 the experience of that that kindness or compassion or whatever that'll be that'll be a dominant presence in your mind and so particularly someone who's so sort of attractive and appealing and inspiring like Lumpur Cha he, over and over again in many many different ways he would say don't look at me look at yourself or people say Lumpur are you enlightened he said well don't don't want, don't worry about whether I'm enlightened ask yourself why you aren't <laughs> so they're all kind of handing it back. To to the individual to to to, to um, take the encouragement of being close to those good qualities, not say yes, I'm, I must admit I'm really wonderful, you know, but rather yes, there is an impact, but put, use that impact in a, a skillful way to help change yourself, change your own heart. Okay, so to continue. We people, whatever our station in life, have been born together into this world. So, when someone else is suffering, it's impossible for us to enjoy happiness by ourselves. For example, if someone's going hungry, we won't hoard all the food for ourselves. We are different from animals. If you throw a big lump of rice to some dogs, they won't think about sharing it. They will just run at it and bite each other over it, because they're hungry, and that's all they know. The stronger ones will bite the weaker ones, and the losers limp away, yelping. If you, want each other, if you want each one to get a share, you have to break it up into smaller balls and scatter them around. Then when each dog is eating in its own little territory, they might not fight. People have these tendencies too. Why is it that society is deteriorating today? Because metta is not all-inclusive. I've seen the elders in a village where kids are troublemakers. The youngsters go around robbing houses in the neighbouring villages and eventually they end up stealing in their own village. So the old folks round them up and try to teach them, Hey, you guys, don't go stealing in our village or our township. If you're going to steal, do it somewhere far away. The other towns and villages are okay to rob. Just don't do it here. This is how they teach the kids. Well, elders are pretty important. We look up to them for their wisdom. They say things like this. Actually, they are being thoroughly selfish. If the elders in the, other, in the other villages are telling their youngsters the same thing and sending them to rob this village first, how will things turn out? This is our home. Don't do that here. We think of other folks, sorry, we think of older folks as having wisdom. But this is dark wisdom. It doesn't have anything to do with Dharma. There is a narrow meta for only a few. But people do tend to be this way. If we don't have Dharma in our lives, we are no different from animals. Maybe like chickens. What does a chicken do besides eat, sleep and breed? When someone is raising a chicken, he keeps on feeding it, 
but only for one purpose. The chicken has no idea. It's just happy to be fed. The owner keeps feeding it and picking it up to weigh it every day. Hmm, is it two kilos yet? Is it three? Three kilos yet? The chicken gets to feel that its owner loves it. Always picking it up like that? Finally, market day arrives. Still, the chicken doesn't have a clue. It's easy to catch because it's used to being picked up. The owner puts it in the back of the truck. Hey, what fun to ride in a truck. Never done that before. Even when it's being sold and its head is on the chopping block, the butcher stretching out its neck to make a clean cut, the chicken is enjoying the pleasant sensation of a massage. <laughs> Slightly dark humour from Lumpur. But uh, again, it's very, very much conditioned by northeast, northeast Thai village life. Though um, so that, uh, uh, again, sort of characterising the, the animal realm and how we can be a clueless as to what we're uh, involved in, and um, the, uh, uh, the the impulses of selfishness or, or narrowness of view, and and you know. I'm all right. I've got mine, and the other lot are different. You can uh, uh, you can take advantage of them. It's uh, a, a a narrow and un, uh, unliberated kind of uh, of kindness, and it is always going to lead to more division and and conflict and difficulty. If we don't have dharma, but live by envy and ill will, society will have no peace or happiness. Children born into such an environment will be hard to teach. Communication within a family will be difficult and strained. This is only because there is no dharma. But foolish people ask, can you eat dharma? You go to the monasteries, but what do you get from that? What do you bring back? Where is the dharma that you got? Is it anything you can feed your family with? Actually, when we don't eat dharma, we're just asking for trouble. Whoever does eat dharma only for the purpose of having dharma and lives according to dharma will naturally be a person of integrity and will enjoy happiness. That way is correct. There's no misery or turmoil in the aftermath. This is called eating dharma. If we don't eat dharma, there is no peace in society, only conflict and struggle. So uh, again, this is sort of Lumpur's uh, skill, uh, skillful and sort of unique um, uh, use of language and this kind of thing uh, while well, people would be criticizing what do you go to the monastery for what do you get they didn't uh, there's there's uh, it's a waste of time you don't get anything anything physical that you can bring back or, or share or is going to really make any difference to anybody's life uh, you don't get anything but uh, uh, Lumpur's saying here actually if you don't eat Dharma uh, if you don't really uh, can uh, take that uh, or, or open up the heart to appreciate the reality of things, then your life is always going to be more more difficult and uh, and more of a struggle. And that that um, there's a, a dialogue that he had with um, uh, with someone not exactly related, but uh, I would say there's a there's a connection where a uh, a European person who'd been traveling around to many different monasteries and dharma centers in India and Thailand, Burma and around, and been asking various meditation teachers, uh, why do you meditate, how do you meditate, and what's the result of your meditation? And then uh, Lumpur, uh, he came to visit uh, Lumpur and asked these questions, and Lumpur kind of Played, uh, played along with it and asked the novice to go and bring him a pad of paper and a pen and kind of wanted to get all the questions down and was sort of milking it somewhat. 
and the uh, I think I, I wasn't there, but uh, I had the, the account of this a number of times where um, this uh, sincere European person was wondering whether Lumpur Chow was making fun of him or not. But, uh, eventually, when he got the questions down, he said, "Well, I want to ask you three questions in return. Why do you eat? How do you eat?" And what's the result of having eaten? And then the fellow thought Lumpur Chow was being sort of disrespectful or making fun of him. And then he's saying, well, no, this is actually a, a, a response to your question about meditation because meditation is really food for the heart. Uh, and that, um, you know, like, you, how do you eat food? You know, why do you eat food? How do you eat it? And what's the result of having eaten? Then um, you... Uh, you you eat in a natural way. There's there's a sense of appetite and hunger. Uh, you you eat to keep, to stay alive to to sustain your your life, and um, the, that's the the result of having eaten is that your life is sustained. So meditation is, is exactly the same way. So using this kind of phraseology, eating dharma is like this is uh, this is how we stay alive. This is how we uh, stay really alive, rather than just you know the body keeping breathing but rather that we are living in a way that is fully in, in tune with reality. And that the more that there is a heedfulness and a genuine attunement of, of our heart to, to reality, then uh, we can be said to be genuinely alive, like in the, the verses from the Dhammapada, um, heedfulness or mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death. The heedful never die. Uh, the heedless are as if dead already. This is in Dhammapada verses that are you know, often often quoted, in quite I think verses 20, 21 uh, in the Dhammapada, and that that uh, 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 quality of heedfulness, being fully aware, apamada uh, or mindfulness, sati sampajanya, sati panya, mindfulness and wisdom, mindfulness and full awareness. This is. Um, as he said, the eating dharma. If we don't eat dharma, there's no peace in society, only conflict and struggle. If we have that quality of, of attunement, of, of mindful awareness, then we're able to, to uh, relate to our feelings of happiness and unhappiness, comfort, discomfort, praise and criticism, gain and loss, in very, very skillful ways. When positive things, things happen, we don't get carried away. When painful things happen, we don't get sort of fearful or resentful or, or aversive. But... Uh, that the mind is able to digest those experiences and live harmoniously with them. Any thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes. Is it this quality he said? It's it's feeding you. It's to sustain this kind of emptiness that allows you to um, be with present in normal way. Uh, he he said once it's like a shower that people take shower every day to remove the dirt. Mm-hmm. And would be said that meditation is also kind of removing all the um, from your impressions from before or any thoughts so you clean clean your mind so that it's empty to receive what comes next without the trace of the past so then you will be more in tune with, with the present yes essentially i mean you the the memories and the what's been learnt in the past is there it has its effect but the mind isn't dwelling on that or, or hanging on to it so that 
you don't suddenly stop stop being able to speak or you, you, your, your memory functions don't just suddenly disappear but that quality of emptiness is a, a, is a spaciousness the mind it literally isn't preoccupied it's not dwelling on particular fears or uh, desires or aversions or opinions uh, any kind of preoccupations of, of plans or uh, the um, uh, caught up in, in particular activities so there's a freshness there's an, uh, there's an openness but you still uh, the, the, the lessons that have been learned from the past and the, the good qualities that have been developed uh, and they either are still having their effect they can, they'll rise up and, and uh, say function according to the needs of the moment but that quality of being uh, sort of empty or uh, open, it's uh, it's that I would say is the essence of mindfulness or heedfulness is that uh, not being preoccupied, but uh, attuned to the time, the place, the situation. So basically, finishing all unfinished business and questions, because if something's still on your mind, you can. Yeah, yeah, and it's also the kind of reason why. When you leave your room or your kuti, then you you simply you, you tidy things away. You 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 wash your teacup or you you fold up your 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 bedding. You put things neatly in place, and then you you walk away. There's nothing left undone or half done. Your uh, just simple things like that in our in our training. After we after we've uh, finished a meal, we wash our bowls straight away. We don't leave them till later. You know when the when the the uh, the meal is cooked, and we, we do the washing ups you know, straight away, so that uh, things are, are completed and done, and then you can. Uh, there isn't that sense of the mind having uh, said, ignored or, or left things half done, or um, uh, is overlooking just or just on an ordinary uh, ordinary worldly level, practical physical level. So those are all mind trainings as well the more you look after your physical space and your your clothing or your 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 arms bowl and such like the more you look after those things on a physical level in that way then the more you're doing the same thing with your mind that you're not what what happened yesterday okay and you kind of learn from that and then how's today going to be don't know <laughs> and that uh, that whole that principle that, that sung san sinim of don't know mind that uh, uh, was a um, a theme in a number of his his uh, teachings and books from many years ago that uh, that sense of don't know or, or beginner's mind is that sense of uh, leaving things aside having a, a freshness a, 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 an uncluttedness in relationship to the to the present so there's a, a responsivity there isn't a, a sense of being in the middle of something and uh, and I, I find that that's very, very helpful to, because the mind so easily gets drawn into habitual becomings. I'm in the middle of something, uh, and that well, no, it's not. <laughs> in one way, yes, you're in the middle of something, but in the in another respect, it's just this word that's being written, or this just this this word that's being spoken, this particular thing that is is taking shape here and now. You can say. It's half done, or it's a quarter done, or it's just the beginning, or it's just the end. But it's one way of talking about it. But in itself, it's exactly this. So it's really freeing the heart from becoming, from being caught up in, 
in the or giving those processes uh, of living. So he can say, oh, we're two-thirds of the way through the winter retreat. Well, yes, but that's not an absolute reality. So this moment is exactly this. You can say we're halfway through the week. Well, yes, but actually it's also, it's this moment is exactly like this. So it's keeping those, uh, the ordinary everyday ways that we measure things, keeping that in perspective. And then uh, sort of looking after our, our clothing, our living space, our, uh, the work that we do, looking after those things on a practical level keeps encouraging that sense of, you know, there is this moment and then uh, what needs to be done is done and then it's let go of. And so then you, you're uh, living a very, very spacious life. There's a, a sense of, of uh, boundlessness. Of, uh, that uh, you're not always in the middle of something. <laughs> That's why when people say, "Oh, uh, oh, you're so busy," or the Amaravati is a very busy place, and uh, I can be a bit pedantic about it. But I say I try to. I, I'm very active. There's a lot going on, but I try to never be busy. Busy has got that in the middle of somethingness. But we can be active without being busy, without having that sense of of being caught up. Uh, and then that, so that the mind is ready to engage if need be, but it doesn't need to have any engagement in order to be feeling a, a sense of validity or, or, or value or, or meaning. That makes sense. Yeah, so basically, if, if you're busy, then there is some end that you want to gain. But if you're just in the middle of activity, you do just this action as correctly as possibly you can. And yeah, that's, that's the most important. Yeah. And you can see the habits of the mind are saying, oh, we're two-thirds of the way through, or how many more pages have I got to go, or, or uh, we're nearly at the end of the sitting. And so the, the habits of making those kind of judgments and giving those that kind of a framework is very, very strong. You don't have to sort of suppress that or get rid of it. It's like, yes, on, on one level, there's ten minutes of the Dharma reading to go. On another level, it's exactly this. <laughs> it's... That's just one way of framing this present reality. Okay, so to continue. Wherever you go, you should not be proud or stuck in your ways. In some places, you may not be familiar with the dialect or customs. Don't put on airs or be pretentious. Not knowing others' ways and holding on to your own inflated self-esteem will not work out very well. I'll relate something about Achan Man. He was practicing meditation in the mountains in Paktol, among the hill tribe people. One day, after his sitting, a villager came and asked him, Where did you come from, kid? He answered, I came from Ubon. So, Junior, have you eaten yet? Yes, sir, I ate already. The villagers spoke in this informal way, and I'm guessing the original Thai was quite casual, and they have a very strong sense of hierarchy in terms of speech, the kind of uh, forms of address and pronouns that you'd use, and, and uh, ways for senior to junior, elder to younger, and so on. So this villager was talking to, to uh, Venerable Achan Man as if he was a sort of a, uh, a, young, uh, a young lad and a, very much a junior person. So, Junior, have you eaten yet? Yes, sir, I ate already. The villagers spoke in this informal way, 
with forms of address used when speaking to an inferior, something which we usually think of as impolite, especially so when talking to an ordained person. But those villagers considered it the best way to speak. If we weren't aware of their custom, it would make us angry. If the villager asked us, Where have you come from, kid? We would feel insulted and we wouldn't want to answer. Our throats would get all stiff. But this was not the way of Ajahn Man. He understood the minds of people. But we don't understand people like this. When others use forms of address for a superior in talking to an inferior, it doesn't go down well. In their circle, they considered this the best way to speak. But for us, not understanding the custom, we would probably only get very angry. Uh, I'm reading that I'm remembering somebody, um, uh, it was a, an American fellow who was uh, married to a, a Japanese woman and living in Japan, raising the family there. And uh, he was um, trying very hard to learn Japanese and um, it, was a, it was a bit of a struggle. And so that, uh, so he, but he was, he was putting effort into it and then um, he, uh, but he didn't realize that, uh, I, I'm not sure if there's any Japanese people here, but the, apparently the sort of language forms that you use with talking with children and adults are quite different. And so he was learning, oh, wait, that's what I <laughs> So he was learning his Japanese, the sort of, he didn't realize he was learning baby talk in the kind of, the, the language you would talk to, the, the, you know, his wife was teaching him how to, to talk to the children and learning the the, uh, the the language to the other helpers, but he didn't realize that um, uh, that what the language and the way he was speaking was was kind of completely out of order for an adult, and so then uh, he and he was telling the story. He was he was kind of chuckling to himself. So he said, when I was in a business meeting and he wanted to go to the bathroom, he, what he said was something like, "I need to go potty," <laughs> <laughs> and the other. The other people, the other businessmen around the desk were trying to keep a straight face. But they, you, somebody politely told him off, that's not quite the right um, term to use in a business meeting. <laughs> but yeah, he thought he, was, he kind of got the, the phrase just right, and the, he thought his accent was pretty good, but uh, it was uh, completely out of order in, in, a, in, in terms of the, the, the situation he was in. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Okay, that's the end of that section, so let's leave it there for today.